This is JU Israel Teachers Lounge, where we reach out to current Gap Year students, alumni, and any interested listeners, keeping you connected to what's happening in Israel and giving you insight behind the headlines. I am your host, Senior JU Israel Educator Michael Unterberg, and today we'll be joined, as always, by co-host and director of JU Israel, Alan Goldman. Um, today is... May 6th, Monday, and there we've been in a ceasefire on from the Gaza border all day, but it's been a pretty crazy weekend. So this week, our plan was to release an episode about the state of the nation pre-Yom Ma'ut, and on Saturday and Sunday, Israel received hundreds of rockets, something like 700 rockets from across the Gaza border from Hamas and Islamic Jihad, and it was an overwhelming um, flow of violence and fear and alerts and alarms on the south. And so we decided to not do what we had planned and switch it. On Israeli radio, all uh, yesterday and today are interviews with people about what life is like at the border. And so we decided that although we usually analyze the news today, it was important to do what Israeli radio does, for you to sort of like Israelis, listen to um, what it's like at the border. And we found some English speakers. There is one of the kibbutzim right on the border, happens to be a religious kibbutz, uh, kibbutz alumot, right at the border. And um, we got three uh, olim from England to uh, express what it was like. So we're first going to play for you our interview with Esther Marcus, who's a social worker, and she'll explain to you what her role is, I think, very meaningfully. Then we will play the interviews with Eric and Neville, who are two gentlemen who made Aliyah in the early 70s. So they have a long perspective on what living across the border from Gaza is like. Uh, And uh, I think it's important. I think it's powerful. We'll have to do another episode analyzing what happened and why this flare-up happened now and what it means for the future and all the, you know, sort of analysis behind the headlines that we usually do. But we thought it was more important um, to hear these voices first, please listen. This is, I think, a very important episode, very meaningful and very uh, powerful. So uh, I hope you have a meaningful Yom Ma'ut and a meaningful Yom Zikaron. And thank you for listening. With no further ado, our interview with Esther Marcus. Hi, I'm Esther Marcus, and I'm a social worker, a therapist, and I am in charge of the um, local clinic in the Resilience Centre in the area, which provides services for children, adults, families, communities, uh, aiding them in coping with everything that we have to deal with and have had to deal with for 20 years now. And also the author, yeah, and also the author of um, a book called Colour Red, which um, the words Colour Red are the alarm that we hear when there's a rocket approaching. Um, It was very early on, it was recognized that if we had the regular alarm that we have in the rest of the country, uh, it's a waste of time for us because until you hear the alarm, which starts, and gets louder obviously, um, until we actually hear it, we've wasted four, five, six valuable seconds of the 15 seconds that we have. So they decided instead to um, say the words, Seva Adom, color red, and as soon as we hear those words, we know that we have to run to safety. Although I believe that everybody now, you just have to hear the click <laughs> of the uh, announcement coming on and already you're completely uh, There's an ready. There's a tannoy system above the dining room. 
a repeat. Oh, what? Oh, what is that? Loudspeaker system oh. above the dining room. They're vast, and there's another one slightly down the hill, just in case anybody can't see it. So you can hear it all over the area. In actual fact, we can hear it from Nachalos, if you mm. listen carefully, which is three kilometers away. We can hear Saad occasionally. Mm. But that, um, for us, it's a trigger. Yeah. But, um, so what, uh, oh. no, but for, the, for the kids, when a noise that loud, how do they adjust to that? Right. Well, how do they adjust to that? How do they adjust to rockets? How do they adjust to tunnels? How do they adjust to being attacked by kites, by balloons? That's basically the ongoing battle that uh, we have to deal with. Um, but because we're good, smart, um, I don't know, resilient, interesting people, we've uh, adjusted over the years. Um, that's the story, in my opinion, that's the story of the Jewish nation altogether. We've had to learn to adjust and deal and survive, thankfully. Um, so... What we do is we, first of all, as soon as the, those rockets started, uh, which is what, I'm like going back like 19 years or so, uh, we recognized that we had to talk to the children. We have to prepare them for any and every possible situation. At the time, we did not all have safe rooms, what they're called, mamad, a safe room in our house. So we then located within our houses or within our buildings where is approximately the safest place. Over the years, we have um, added special rooms onto our houses, uh, or even where we sit here today, the, the um, safe room, which is just behind us, um, was only completed uh, a month ago, two months no, ago, no, more, more. a little bit more, ago, about six months ago, okay. Um, but not all the buildings on our kibbutz uh, are protected. Uh, or even my husband who works in the refet with the cows, um, there's a teeny tiny little cube that he could run to, but the, the cow shed itself is so vast that there's no chance of him really getting to safety. Um, so, so going back to the story, um, with the children, we, had to, we also had to learn through them, seeing what they needed and what helps them. Uh, and a few years back, I'm going back, some would think like eight, nine years, I was running a, a, just a drama group, a drama session in a building, which didn't have any protection. And lo and behold, there was an alarm, Seva Adon, Seva Adon. There was nothing I could do to protect the kids, just kind of hug them and uh, somehow put myself over them. As we see today in lots of footage that adults uh, stand over their children. Um, uh, but then I also realized that I had to get them home. It's really important to be next to people that can really take care of you. Uh, and so we started walking on the path and lo and behold, on the path, there was another alarm. With that, the children just scattered crazily to get home as quickly as possible. I'm talking about children aged eight, nine. Uh, and somehow my son, who was eight at the time, he noticed the little girl aged seven where she lived, she, where she was running to, none of the other children lived near her so he ran to be with her and called out to be mommy mommy i'll run with sapir because uh i'll be by my uh, she's sorry she, she's by herself on the path i'll take care of her as if in some bizarre way as an eight-year-old he'd be able to protect her from a kassam rocket uh but a split second later he turned around to me and he said to me but mommy when i come back from her house i'll be by myself on the path who's going to take care of me so i was in my crisis situation of being uh never mind the worst mother the worst jewish mother we carry guilt with us anyway because we're born into it and that's part and package deal of who we are but this was really you know what really a question what are we putting our children through a question that's still valid today uh people still ask me today why do you live there are you sure it's the right thing to do etc etc um anyway 
recognizing the fact that we as adults, our job, I think, is obviously to take care of our kids, I came up with the idea of a story which I then transferred into a book, which we also perform as a play. And in the story, we meet Colour Red, we meet all the colours of the rainbow, and they come for their annual conference. And one by one, all the colours stand up and tell what they've done throughout the year. And each one's applauded, and how fantastic. And then it comes to the turn of Colour Red, and Colour Red doesn't stand up. And Colour Red is very sad and says, nobody likes me, children hate me. Uh, even cats and dogs are scared of me. And I knew that from fellow therapists as well, that, or teachers uh, had told me that children stopped using the color red in their paintings. Children refused to wear the color red. And color red like became the enemy. Uh, so in the story, the other colors explain to color red that uh, no, they're not scared of you. They're scared of the rockets and the missiles. And we should be scared of the rockets and the missiles. They're the ones that, that do the damage. And it's really important that somehow we make sense of what's going on. It can't make sense of everything because none of it really does make any sense. Um, but at least know and understand, yes, you should be scared of the missiles and the rockets. Um, and actually, Colour Red is, uh, is your friend because when you hear those words, you know you have... 15 seconds to run to safety like when you're on the beach and the flag is flying the red flag you know that it's dangerous waters you have to get out so we also have to identify what's there to help us what's there to protect us and then discovering ourselves at the same time to learn what helps us cope and of course color red then recognizes that that's the job that he's been given and he says okay i accept that that's my role which is also important we all have our own mm -hmm jobs to do and uh, later on families told me that uh, when they read the story to the children they then gave out jobs like one somebody's job in the family when they run into the safe room is to turn the light on another one the job is to take the games out another one is to make sure the dogs come in another one is to make sure the doors close and we also know that when you when you have a job when you have a role to do that plays on very importantly protecting uh, preventing post uh, traumatic stress disorder because the whole the whole idea of being in that trauma is that you don't know what to do but here they know what they need to do so that helps keep the anxiety down and afterwards when they retell their story and they say oh I did this oh I did this that's right you did what you're supposed to do and uh, so that also helps um, uh, give them a lot of strength uh, the problem is that it just goes on and on in the storybook um, which I will bring you I'll show you um, they then declare that color red is the the one that wins the award and everybody's happy and they yeah. dance together and form a rainbow, which for me was also very uh, important because of the commitment uh, that we have with God that uh, that's it, he won't bring a, a flood again. Um, on the last page though, the last page we see these beautiful different coloured balloons going up in the air and we're all happy. And Somebody said to me, oh, you see Esther, your book got to the other side and they, you gave them ideas, etc, uh, etc. Et um, but that's just uh, how it goes. But that's all. Again, another thing that we have to cope with is that children's childhood is being is being taken away from them. So on the one hand, uh, yes, they're learning coping skills. There's also a lovely, lovely song that a lady in the area wrote. And the younger children, age two, three, four, every time there's a rocket attack and they go to the safe place. And once they hear the explosion, they all sing this song, which has actions to it. Uh, and the actions also help them release tension, released anxiety. They, they, they talk about that they bang their heart because their heart is banging really, really loudly. 
uh, and they shake their hands and they jump up and down and that they're happy because now it's over. So all of this is helping them internalize what's going on. Uh, for people who live here, we've now become used to it. Uh, when people from outside come and see it, they're completely freaked out that our two-year-old, three-year-old kids are singing this ridiculous song. But I think in the same way, it's, it's when we see and learn uh, of how people survived the Holocaust and were able to turn something in to, uh, I don't necessarily say positive, but using our creativity in coping with what's going on. Uh, I worked in the, the kibbutz Nachalot down the road and with the kids painting pictures and they would paint um, like butterfly netting as if they were catching the Qassam rockets and turning them around and sending them back. And we talked about how if a rocket were to hit the ground and they'd make a hole, then that's where we're going to plant a tree. Like from something negative, you turn it around and make it into something positive. And all the time with the children, we're working to see what their strengths are. What are you good at? What helps you? What uh, uh, enables you to get through the night? What helps you get up tomorrow? And at the same time, acknowledge that um, their reactions are very normal. Uh, unfortunately, uh, and every time, like we've just been through now, I call, I call them the two-day wars or the three-day wars because that's what they are for me. Uh, and I'm just inundated with phone calls of parents telling me my child has stopped eating, my child stopped drinking, my child is scared to go to the toilet, my child is scared to have a shower, my child won't go outside anymore. My, my child, I, Obviously, their behavior is changing. And again, each time, parents need to gain skills uh, to to know what's considered okay, that this is a normal reaction, but how slowly but surely to give their children back the uh, ability to cope. I feel like I'm just jabbering and jabbering. Oh, no, no, no. We're not interrupting you because this is, yeah. we're, we're, we are uh, fascinated. <laughs> I mean, I mean, even, even in that question, like I would, I would say that like, if they're not eating, that's not a, a rational response, but being afraid to take a shower to me seems like a very rational response. Right, because with a lot of children, and including myself, we were caught in the shower or in the bathroom when something happened. Um, it's true, the eating is a, is a new symptom for us. But um, if, when I dig a little bit more, my understanding is that uh, they actually have a really bad stomachache. Mm -hmm. Because as we know, uh, the body takes in what uh, we're feeling. So they don't have an appetite to eat because they're carrying the pain in their stomach. So if we're able to help them release the pain from the stomach, then they'll be able to eat again. That's also what it comes from. And a lot of kids are throwing up as well. That's also a natural um, psychosomatic response to everything that's going on. Uh, not necessarily in connection. There are fear of dogs anyway because some children are scared of dogs. Um, the dark, definitely. Children who didn't, don't want their beds to be next to the window because the window um, shakes. Round. Yeah. Uh, noises, lots of noises uh, will cause different reactions. There'll be people who'll go to weddings and then say, tell me that their children were freaked out because the music was so loud. Or, or even as I say, you just hear that click and there's a response. There's the, there's the Tseva Dome, and then there's the firing from the IDF that goes back. Right. Um, so how do, do kids uh, differentiate between those? Do they feel one, you know? So uh, um, again, we've had to learn how to cope with all these different noises. Um, children, interestingly enough, yeah, they, have, they are able to differentiate between what's our Air Force, um, the Iron Dome as well, which also makes another noise. It's like a low whistle. 
and then I don't know if you know, but when the the way that it works, the uh, the the Iron Dome tracks the Kassam rocket, gets up close to it, blows itself up next to the Kassam rocket. So there's a very loud uh, uh, boom in the air. Um, generally, I would say children can differentiate, uh, but but even the sound of the air force also freaks them out because they're very very loud explosions. Um, during Suketan, how do you say that in English? Protective, uh, protective edge. We we became an army base, our kibbutz, and there were soldiers here from the engineers, engineering corps, and they were explaining to the children how things work, and they were explaining. Uh, hopefully if they detect a tunnel, how they blow up a tunnel. And again, you've got this crazy situation of kids seven, eight, nine being exposed to ammunition and all these horrific and awful things. But they're exposed to it anyway. So our approach is, uh, okay, but at least let's be able to explain it to them so they get an understanding and then they see that this is what the army's doing and that, and that we're being protected. And it's really, really important. Knowledge is empowering. Yes. And giving them that knowledge is empowering them to... Well, things that they see should be explained, but, but like things like tunnels that they hopefully won't. Well, it, everything needs to be explained according to their age. Mm -hmm. And what, so obviously we have a group of psychologists uh, and therapists always thinking in terms of what's right for them. But we, have, we know that they're being exposed to it, like they're, they're, the news is on or the, uh, they're reading papers. So we have to come up with answers that somehow help them uh, make, again make some kind of understanding we had again during protective edge know if you're hiding something. yes 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 it's it, things are very much have changed even from the way i remember when i was brought up in london back in the 70s uh and say somebody in the family died you wouldn't tell a kid that even your grandparents you know they've passed on they've moved on they've gone with even the terminology mm -hmm. and uh it was eventually recognized you have to use the word died yes they have to know uh, that they're not going to see them again uh, thing. You have to be clear and also you have to uh, help the child understand that that they can cope. We as parents, we as adults have to, uh, 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 within ourselves, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not just transmit, we, we have to model, and, maybe. and trust, trust our children that they can cope because they really do cope with, uh, and certainly here in Israel, I mean, we've been through all the people im and, and Pretty much every family come Yomazikaron, or not even some cousin, some uncle, somebody's unfortunately died. So they are exposed to it. Uh, but having said that, we have to control how much they're exposed to and what they're exposed to, because they're anyway exposed to the bombs and the blowing. So we don't have to leave the TV on for them the whole time. You know, we should restrict that in ourselves. Uh, we have to know what works, what keeps that balance. Like I know for myself, listening to music and dancing and, and not watching the news. I if I watch the news as well, then, that, then I, I just can't function. But I have to make sure that I'm available to the people that phone me. So I just don't put the news on. It's not worth it. Not, I can't control that. There's nothing I can do about it. So I just don't go there. Whereas other people, they need to hear and to see all the time. So you have to recognize in yourself. Yeah, so, so that's the, which is fine because especially, and I know that also from people who aren't here when, when we go through these couple of days, like people who went away for Shabbat, sometimes it's harder for them because they come back and A, they feel the guilt. And we've all experienced a collective um, a collective experience that they haven't. So they're now not part of something. So that's also, you know, what's going on. We all have our own narrative. Uh, and that narrative is, again, in my opinion, part of the narrative of Am Yisrael, of Medinat Yisrael. Uh, what I actually think is 
people say to me, oh, it's so hard how you live. And I actually think it's really hard to be at university and to argue causes and to to stand up there against people who come up with all this bizarre data about the Palestinians and everything, and they have to have the guts to, to stand and have their say. That, to me, is, is harder. So I guess we all have our, you know, we all deal with what we deal with. But it's also a challenge on an emotional level to raise them not seeking revenge, not being full of hatred, not... Uh, yes, to be angry. Yeah, I'm angry. Like it's all that. That's absolutely valid. But to carry around this desire to destroy back or to seek revenge, uh, in my opinion, is not correct. I don't think it's right, even as a generation, as a people. Um, but again, that comes back to different families might work in different ways. But as a collective society, as a as a kibbutz, we don't educate the children to to hate. And we do believe that there are people on the other side who do want something different. Their voice isn't heard. Um, and I have to say, I don't know if you represent them, whoever, there's a certain amount of anger towards the uh, media, the way that stories are told, the way the angles, uh, and obviously everybody has an angle. And that can be really frustrating, like even these last couple of days, to see incidents where uh, it's reported, obviously, what's happened on the other side without necessarily anything being reported here. There's, not, there's no balance. That also doesn't make any sense. But I also know myself, I can't, I can't keep thinking about that because that would just bring me down as well. And again, that's a challenge. But that's a ch Which brings me to another point that I really have to emphasize. It, it really, really helps us that people take an interest, that people like yourselves doing this podcast, the people that come and visit, you're all more than welcome to come and visit. Uh, it, it, it gives us that support or when these things happen and I get like 50 WhatsApp messages from different people uh, in Israel and outside, that keeps me afloat. So, And for me, that comes back to, again, we all have a role, like Tsevar Dom, as I say, they, the army gave the, their role. We have our own role to play here. We didn't choose to come here to fight on the borders to, you know, nobody knew then what was going to happen. But if we're here, then we do what we do. When the soldiers come here, our job is to take care of them and look after them because they're somebody else's kids or husbands or fathers. Uh, and the way that I see it is also that people from Hutzlar, it's people from abroad. Uh, it's your job to, to keep supporting and helping us in any way that you can. That was Esther, who I think you'll agree um, spoke very beautifully and powerfully and gave a real sense of what it's like to teach, educate, and care for kids and for adults and for everyone in the community. We now bring you to Eric and Neville for their thoughts on what life has been like and what it is like these days and what a weekend like this past weekend was like. All right, so maybe just we'll start with how, how the last, basically the last round of uh, escalation, you could say, really started heavily on Friday night, I, I believe. I, I know for, most on Shabbat, but on Friday, I know the last thing I saw before I turned off uh, my phone, before candlelighting, was uh, the, uh, there was some firing from Gaza at troops, Israeli troops, and didn't know much else. And then I live much further away, 40 kilometers, so we only had one siren on Shabbat, and that's when we got an indication that that something was going down. How far are you guys from the border? Like just in terms of just distance, how far are you? Three and a half kilometers. Something. To the fence. Between three and a half and four, depends where you're looking, uh, to the fence itself. About six and a half, seven kilometers to the sea. So the... The, the, the other side of Gaza. Exactly. <laughs> this, um, 
Gaza is varies between about six and seventeen kilometers wide. So how, what would that be? Could you how, how guys good are you guys at imperial? Uh, how what is that in miles? Do you think between two and a half and ten miles wide? Yeah. If you want imperial. Yeah. <laughs> well, a lot of our listeners are American, so you're figuring you're just a couple miles from the border. So I would imagine over the last few days things have been very noisy, at least. Eric has the dubious, I don't know, pleasure or privilege <laughs> of just starting to daven Musaf, not Musaf, Birkat Chodesh, and then there was Teva. <laughs> no, it's Mishogach for the state. Yeah. We had a, a warning. So I got off the bimmer. People were wondering whether to go outside. So you're, you're leading the prayers, and the alarms go off. The red alert alarms go off. There was no indication beforehand that things had been getting okay. Oh yes, yes, uh, there'd been things in the morning, but um, the shul is the shul. So um, it started that we hear tseva adom, red paint or (laughs) color red, whatever you like to call it. Red alert. alert. And um, so I got off the bim and waited for the crowd to calm down, and within a minute, so. Everybody's saying to me around me, what are you stopping for? So we started again. And later on, after we'd finished Musa from eating lunch, I discovered that there'd been another one during Kedusha, which I didn't hear because we were singing. But why, you didn't go to a, a, um, a safety room? Let's count seven seconds. How far can you move in one, two, three, four, five, six seven how far can you go the shul on the hill it's got blast windows yeah they're now they're, they're now meant to be blast windows yeah we replaced them a few years ago what is a blast window when anything falls nearby hopefully it doesn't kill people with the, the broken glass they don't shatter they yeah. crack rather than the shatter so there's no wood apart from that there's no shelter anywhere nearby. Even if we had the 15 or the 30 seconds, you still, and you could run, and everybody could get out on time, there still wouldn't be any shelter uh, nearby. I mean, why, why isn't there a design? I mean, it happens often enough that you guys are under fire. Why aren't there shelters designed within immediate distance wherever you are? Behind you in that room, that's a shelter which we just built. It came online about half a year ago. Behind you over there, outside the building, there's a, there's a limit to how much you can protect yourself. The government has spent enormous sums to give us in the houses, etc., etc. Do you have a life inside a sheltered room, or do you continue a normal life? Do you give in, or do you continue your normal life? So when there is a warning like this, we daven here in the Bed Midrash, where there is a formal shelter. And we don't in the shul, but the shul, this was a surprise. We didn't know it was coming in. We didn't know how serious it was going to be. So uh, we um, carried on davening. I was very amused afterwards to hear that we drowned out the, the warning by, by singing through Kedusha. <laughs> it was... Um, yeah. well, it's a compliment to your leading, isn't it? That you, you sang louder than the... Uh... Uh, it just says I've got a loud voice. <laughs> Let's get a sense Good lungs, at least, if not... Uh... So how does that work, that that day in, day out? Like what you're saying, the balancing of, you know, living your life as opposed to getting to shelter. Like for most Israelis, it's not 
it's not constant like it was here for for really over two days. You like fifty warnings in two days. Fifty warnings in two days. Each warning means you go into your protected space. So how do you how do you work? How do the kids go to school? How do how does it work? Like just how does life work? Children don't go to school because the, even though the school itself is uh, protected, it's a com- concrete, uh, solid concrete structure which can withstand any sort of. Uh, blast or explosion but the danger is the transportation uh, i mean unfortunately we've seen in the last couple of days people have been hit sitting in uh, cars or in vehicles so we know that moving even though the vehicle may be moving it's uh, it's a target we're not going to take a chance with, uh, with the children so there's no formal no, no school and uh, a few other activities also stop mainly because we want to reduce the number of people that are travelling on the roads. But uh, within the kibbutz itself, we maintain a routine of life. More or less, everything goes on as normal. There may be relocations like uh, tefillah. Instead of taking place in the Beknes, it will take place either in this building here, which is the Bet Midrash, which is all concrete, but even so, it has a lot of glass windows. Or as we did during the war, Tsuketan, we went into one of the into the kindergarten, which is uh, fully protected. But it's uh, on Shabbatot. It's, it was it was a bit tight to say the least in the uh, in the kindergarten. I mean, but uh, you do a, a good chunk of your of the kibbutz is run on agriculture. So there's a certain amount of work in the fields. Then I would imagine you also have factories for packaging and things like that. I mean, people have to do their job in those places. Many facets of life stop. The, you, you can't ask people to come and work in the factories. If you're not sending your kids there, the same thing applies. You can't go into the fields which are close to the fence because you're a target. The army, uh, the army. The army does not allow any work. Already, I think on Sunday morning, a, a notice was put in place not to work. Anywhere, the side of the main road, the side of the kibbutz, anywhere between that road and the, the border with Gaza, it was forbidden to, to go to work. And they're, they're firing from right outside the kibbutz, right? The army is basically functioning right nearby. Everywhere around us. <laughs> uh, because, yes, we have a pet um, iron dome nearby, which makes a lot of noise. You see the other side of the better Knesset, uh, there's a battery of uh, iron domes there. Which is an advantage in terms of you can hear the Iron Dome going off before you even hear the warning that we've got incoming, so you get another second, perhaps two. Oh, so it's eight seconds, you guys. You're just complaining about seven <laughs> seconds. I can't believe, I thought British people were supposed to have a stiff upper lip, and you're, here you are whining. Officially, it's 15 seconds. That's what I wanted. That's what I it doesn't exist. Offic- the official number is 15 seconds. But even 15 seconds, um, if you're moving... You know, we're, we're talking about something we're really used to. You're asking about the practicalities of how we do things. And a community like this is very well organized and very well versed in how do we do things. I, I think the, the more immediate and pressing question is, how do you feel where the two million residents in Gaza try to kill you all the time? This is the eighth round in the past, what, year? year and a half? Eighth time that this has happened. 
That means that every time they want something, extend the fishing zone, they will try to kill you. Every one of those rockets which has been sent off is a war crime because they're statistical weapons that are aimed in the general direction of civilian populations and you're the target. So there's a, an existential idea here. What are they trying to do? They're trying to kill you. And it doesn't matter simply because you're a Jew, because you're here. Uh, um, to my mind, this is the, 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 the most difficult problem. We are a, a very well-organized community. We're, we are a community that, you know, sort of like if Neville and I have lived here, I've known Neville for what, about 55 years or something like that. We knew each other in England. But we've lived here all this time with the same people. We got organized as a community. We're, for instance, we have a country lodge and there were all sorts of people here who have never experienced that. So a part of the fact I happened to know one of the people who, who was there, several of the people who were there. So I went round to, so we had the therapist go around and we had our um, security man go around and the fellow who's in charge of the lodge go around to make sure that they, and <coughs> excuse me, the lady who's in charge of the, the, the country lodge takes around you know, popsicles for the kids and all this sort of thing. Because we know that these people haven't experienced it before. So we'll look after them in a completely different way. Because they don't live in the south, they're just visiting because you have this nice facility. Yeah, well, it's a commercial facility in every sense, but we realize that these people are, but we're old hands, we sort of know what to do and where to go and how to do it. So in many ways, you're asking us, you know, what's it like to live here? We're the wrong people mm -hmm. because we're organized. We know how it is. They, I mean, well, but, but in a way, I can imagine what it would be like to be a guest at the lodge and how I would feel, I really wonder. You, you asked it flat out. How does it feel? Do you feel afraid? Do you feel resolute? Do you feel stubborn? Do you feel angry? Do you feel... Like, what's the... I, I am actually more curious about what it's like to live here because I can imagine being that guest. We've become used to it. Um, it's a very strange and unusual uh, routine to become used to. And uh, it ju just so happens that... <laughs> Yesterday, I, I wrote a letter to the family that lives in the house in London where I used to live because next week I intend to go and visit him. And it was a Sunday afternoon, and I, th I was thinking, I, if I was in London now, on a Sunday afternoon, taking things easy, relaxing, and at the same time, the place called... Uh, in Lost Gardens or Brent Cross, that's an area not far from where I live, the enemy would be sitting and bombarding and sending us a barrage of missiles and all the rest. It's something completely unrealistic or surreal it was. And in fact, when I was writing this, excuse the language, I was going to say something, but uh, <laughs> this letter to him, I thought, I had to stop twice because I was interrupted by the alerts, by the red alerts. I thought, no, where am I? Fifty years ago, I'd have been sitting in study and home, studying whatever it might be, and then uh, fifty years later, I'm here, and yet, you know, things just didn't didn't seem real. They just didn't uh, re really come together. I mean, I think this is only something that people from Chutzlaritz can can appreciate. People obviously were born here. It's entirely entirely different. 
but it's something incongruous just just isn't the isn't the word and uh, you know you ask how do, how how do i feel how do we feel about it and uh, here unfortunately we go, we, we go into the realm of politics and uh, without being too political about it we feel let down disappointed once again uh, it's something we knew was going to happen and even now after the so-called uh, settlement for the moment we know it's going to happen again and then it's only a question of time till it happens again because our political leaders are unable to make a proper decision which will end this situation I wouldn't say once and forever because there's no ultimate uh, solution but everybody I think without exception in, in, in the whole of this area realise this is going to happen again. So what's the whole point of it? And, yeah, and you, so you're saying like once or twice a decade you could understand the government having trouble stopping, but eight times a year seems like there should be more to do? Is that the, that's the consensus you're speaking? There, there, there is more to do and there's more that can be done. The fact is that many members of the previous government and also the new government are also saying the same thing. And they told us that they've got solutions, but uh, the political world just does not exist. So I would ask two questions. One is the personal one, why don't you move? And the other is, if you were in the position of um, chief of staff, prime minister, 64 boys died in Protective Edge. Um, if you're a commander, if you're somebody in with the responsibility that you have to send people in, you know that will be deaths. You don't take that lightly. To my mind, that's the thinking at the moment, whether I agree with it or not, because the cost of going in there with all the booby traps that they've set up in roads, in houses, and everything else, they're firing some of those missiles from hospitals and schools and everything else. They are using their human population as shields. If we go in there, it's going to be extremely expensive in terms of our human lives. So, how many, what's your basic expenditure? How many lives are you willing to, Eisenhower in, in D-Day was willing to have 60 or 80,000 casualties because he was calculating that. And he was delighted, I think there were 20 odd thousand on the first day and you know, that was wonderful. Can we, we cannot exist in the same level as Jews in the land of Israel. But I mean, what do you say in terms of why don't you leave if it's, you know... The I'll answer the second question first. <laughs> I, I, I don't think it's necessary to put a single soldier inside Gaza. Everything can be done from the air. Almost everything can be done from the air. The fact is, we saw now that if we hit the right sort of targets, the quality targets, like uh, the luxury flats, six and seven floors, we knock a few of them down. And at the same time, we start bumping off their... Uh, local commanders and high commanders, that'll, that'll do the trick. I don't think we should put a single soldier in there. Not one soldier. We've got enough sophisticated weaponry, and I'm not talking only about planes, but there are other sort of weapons that can be used in order to uh, deter them from them to, to learn a lesson. You, we can see now that once they realize that when they finish shooting their rockets, they've got no house to come back to, and they saw the damage that was done and inflicted and all the rest, and they know once they get in the car and start driving and putting their hands in the hands of God and 
they, they don't always reach the end of the journey in one piece. And the first question? Why don't I leave? Good question. Because that's what I came that's what I came here for. Not by chance did I, we choose to come and live on a border settlement. Because in order for people to, in the rest of the country to be able to live quietly and safely, you need people on the borders. And uh, without going into too much Bene Kiva ideology. <laughs> the, the, that, that's the, the fact of the situation. That's why we came here. We came here as part of a gallery and that's why we came to live on kibbutz. All the, the whole of the Gaza border from the, from the extreme north, from uh, Yad Mordechai all the way down to Kerem Shalom, it's one line of kibbutzim. So Saad and Alumim are two religious kibbutzim. And that, that, that's, what, that's just why we're here. So the question doesn't even arise, why to leave and why do we stay here? What about, uh, what about your families, children and grandchildren? Are they, do you have on the kibbutz and are they as resolute? Uh, I have a son here with four children. And as it happens, completely coincidentally, he'd organized to go out on holiday with his wife to celebrate their 10th anniversary. On the other hand, after we saw what was going on, he took the kids with him instead of staying with uh, Safta. Um, that was just a convenience of the moment. What do you say? Well, um, I can only direct you to what my daughter-in-law wrote about the feeling. The kids are outside, what's going on? And bring the dog inside because, she, you know, tell the kids, calm the dog down, which of course calms the children down. But uh, I'm absolutely with Neville. If you, in today's world, if you as a Jew just think of yourself and don't stand up to be counted, we are lost. And this doesn't matter where you're living as a Jew. If you don't make your mark, as a Jew, if you don't admit and overcome the individual need because you realize that the general, the community need is greater, you're going to have a problem. Or let's say, so united we stand. The, the, it's absolutely true today and all over the world. If we leave here, that's a victory for them. Throughout the nation which is the state of Israel, I mean, this is from the Tower and Stockade in between 37 and 39, I think there were 50 odd Tower and Stockade things. Where you plant your feet, that's where you can stay. We happen to, the, the situation has changed here over the, over the time that we've been living here. That doesn't mean to say that you give up or say no or I can't take this anymore. Well, what, what was it like living on the border before the first intifada, before the Oslo process? <laughs> there was a tiny rusty fence, which after Oslo they stole <laughs> for the metal. And everything went um, completely haywire after 87 with the first intifada. And that's when things got really rough. The and there was no fence at all. Oh, I was on that line. I was doing uh, clear, a lot of places there weren't, but they stole all of it after Oslo. Uh, there was a, a huge, uh, there was a long run of the, the land where there was no fence whatsoever. I mean, I, I remember working with Ahmed and doing various jobs in building in Kalni. Kalni is a place just the other side of the border 
where we had uh, some fields which we worked on, and uh, there was no fence at all. There was no problem going backwards and forwards across the fence. Uh, unfortunately, in the second year of the kibbutz, uh, a terrorist also came across and they planted a landmine in our fields next to a dirt track, and one of the members of the kibbutz uh, ran over it, um, and he was killed. Uh, so it's really... 1967, 68? Something like that. No, just before we came in, just before, in 69, uh, around Rosh Hashanah time, in, uh, just before, just after Rosh Hashanah in 1969, that's a year and a half, two years after the kibbutz had been established. So we had our first uh, real real victim, unfortunately, who was, who was killed. But... Uh, at the same time, it was very easy to get into Gaza. I mean, I, I remember for many, many years getting taxes from the centre of Gaza to go to Jerusalem or to Beersheba. In fact, even... You, you, you yourself would go into Gaza City to get a taxi and then... It's very, very easy. It's very simple. There used to be Arab, to Arab taxis running all the time from Beersheba to, to Gaza. And the taxis running all the time from Beersheba to, to Jerusalem. And not only that, I remember doing Miluim in Sinai. And when, uh, on the way back, I managed to get a, a, a lift, a tram, in an army vehicle to the center of Gaza. I had a weapon with me and all the rest. I got out, and right in the center of Gaza, I was hitchhiking to come back here to Alumim. Nothing happened. I, I wasn't the only one. I wasn't a great hero or anything like that. Far from it. But that's what everybody used to do. <laughs> that's the dumb thing. I think for our students, that sounds unimaginable, right? Like, that just sounds like a different world. I mean, Sorry? I've heard those stories, and it seems unimaginable to me. Yeah. <laughs> People went from all over the area to have their cars serviced. They had dental treatment there. They went for Friday shopping in the markets there. Everything from, was... From people from Gaza came here also to shop? Or? To work. It was cheaper there. You go there where it's cheaper. <laughs> but uh, it, the situation was totally, totally different. But that combination of... Oslo Accords and Intifada. Once again, we just wanted to give you a sense of what it's like to listen to these voices from the South. And we thank Esther and Eric and Neville for, you know, they didn't have to take their time. They have a lot of things to be to deal with right now. And um, they thought it was important for our listeners to hear what it's like. And we cannot thank them enough. We really appreciate that time. And we hope you appreciated listening to it. Um, Happy Yom Atzma'ut and have a meaningful Yom Azikaron. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Uh, this is the part where I remind you that we are the JU Israel Teachers Lounge podcast. And it's also the part where I ask you to subscribe, to rate and review us, and to share and recommend us in any way you can. Also, we'd love your feedback so we can respond to you on or off the podcast. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Thanks.